Well, here we are in the new year and very much looking forward to our first session today, which is all about cyber. It's been one of the most requested topics when we've spoken to listeners and asked what they wanted to hear more about. So I think it's only right that we address it. Certainly very interesting times in the cyber market. Premium rate growth has been very strong. There's real questions about whether that's peaking or going to start dropping off now. But what we know is that the risk continues to morph and to change in very interesting ways. And I think we're still a long way away, probably, from saying that the market is mature and stable. So we have an absolutely excellent guest with us today to discuss this topic. So welcome to the podcast, Simon Cartagena. Thank you. Hi. Simon, you are currently at SCORE, where you're Deputy CRO, and you're soon to be moving to Cincinnati, where you will be CRO. You're also a member of the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries Risk Management Board and on the Cyber Risk Investigation Working Party. So you've got absolutely excellent credentials to talk about cyber, and I'm really looking forward to picking your brain. Welcome to Insurance Uncut. I'm Jessica Clark. And I'm Charles Cronier. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch via LinkedIn or our website. Let's kick off with this week's episode. Maybe before we kick off, Simon, it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about your career journey today and I guess really how you kind of got into cyber and what is it about this topic that interests you in particular? I started in the London market a bit by accident like many of us do. <laughs> I ended up at a syndicate for a year on the underwriting and exposure management side. Quickly decided I wanted to be an actuary, so I ended up at a big four consultancy, um, trained there, spent seven years there. And then the reason I became involved with cyber was just because I'd gone on a career break and came back to kind of no engagements and no work. And one of the things that was emerging around then was these cyber projects with Symantec, actually, which just kind of really interested me that they were interested in this space. It was obviously a big name, but not associated to insurance. And that company's gone on to become Cybercube now, but I was involved with them in the early days when they were scoping out what their offering to the market looked like. So that's kind of how I got into it. And I found a really interesting kind of area just because there was no set way at that time and probably still isn't of how to look at the risk. I think that's something with cyber is people do say cyber risk to mean lots of different things in particular. So I guess it's really broad and evolved a lot over the last few years. What are the kind of different approaches that you see kind of used to model cyber risk firms that have currently been using day to day? Well, particularly back when I was at a consultancy, I think we saw very different approaches to way that insurers would look at it because very early on and the way that a lot of the aggregation firms, vendor firms for cap modeling have been looking at it is really from like a ground up perspective. So taking an insured and trying essentially to model the operational risk of that company against certain perils. So whether that's, you know, what happens to that company when a ransomware hits, like what are the actual financial costs and operational costs that that company would be hit by large corporates, some big names like Sony around the time were hit by exactly that thing. There was a lot of people doing a lot of work in the corporates and banking space that were looking at it very much from their single company perspective. And obviously, 
when we look at it from an insured perspective, we tend to look at it more aggregated and think about it more on a portfolio basis. And so I think a lot of what I've seen has just been traditional actuarial techniques applied to the risk in the portfolio. But if you're doing that, you're in danger of missing quite a lot, which is exactly, you know, why particularly some of the corporates and some of the more advanced people were using like cybersecurity experts in particular to help understand that risk and quantify it. And that's been, I guess, one of the biggest differences in the line of business from what I've seen is that to price and understand the risk, it's very difficult to do that as an actuary just from your desk. And there's a huge world of very, very technical and complex like cybersecurity stuff out there that you need, that it's hard to become an expert in both actuarial science and all of that. So quite often you're having to work very, very closely and collaboratively with those people. And I know that in some of our discussions before today's session, you were saying that this is an area where it's particularly true that past data might be a very poor guide to the future. Yeah, that was another thing that really interested me about it when I got involved, actually, because this is particularly true of the risk landscape side of things. So there are elements of it which you can look to the past, like some parts of the cost will, and the severity side of things may be relatively similar, although we still can't be entirely sure. But certainly, like the frequency is very, very dependent on how active the risk landscape is. So that these threat actor groups, which the cyber criminals from around the world and these well-known groups that largely out of, or some of them are sponsored by nation states and some have purely political agendas rather than malicious. So that risk landscape and what weapons and tools they have and what the cybersecurity defense landscape looks like really determines the risk of individual losses and large-scale losses at any given time. So last year was a really good example of ransomware claims just totally dropping off because all of those criminals were re-diverted to a war effort and they no longer had the time to go out and be attacking Western companies. So the frequency can massively change, I think, from year to year. We have to be careful not to rely too much on, I'd even go as far as to say like data back in 2018 may just not be relevant today. Wow. I definitely want to come back to asking more on your views on how the war in Ukraine and other recent developments are impacting the cyber market. But just on this point around the past not being useful for the future, I know when we were discussing, there's lots of parallels you can draw with inflation and with climate change as well in terms of the techniques being used might not be relevant because that's such a fundamental assumption. What techniques and methods do you think us as actuaries or risk professionals should be looking to explore more when it comes to dealing with this issue? It's tough because... I didn't say it was going to be easy. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know we're all constrained by time and resource and that type of thing, which is often why we would just kind of default to our normal, well-understood methods. But this type of thing, because it's essentially a man-made risk and there's such a human element to it, you can treat that as random, of course, and you can try and build some kind of random model bigger just distribution to reflect that randomness but to me it's always been like a decision tree problem you know you have threat actors trying to do something and you have companies with certain defenses and the strength of that depends whether an attack will succeed or not it's it's very much like terrorism but 
in a virtual space. And so Markov chains and that type of stuff is a thing that springs to mind. And I'm sure data scientists could think of even more elaborate kind of approaches. I think the question or the place we're kind of at is I at least have not seen many of those methods fully explored. So we don't know how much more value they're able to bring or not and whether they're worthwhile. So does this mean that within the insurance markets, there are insurers who have strong competitive edges because of their, I don't know, access to better data or because they may be using better methodologies to model the risks? I'm sure there'll be some that think that for sure. Whether that's true or not, I have no idea. I think some of the more well-known and mature companies out there have been looking into cyber, I guess would argue that they understand the risk very well and have advanced models. But I think for me, you just have to look at the vendor models to see they're the ones investing huge amount of time and effort into understanding this risk. And they're still at the very early part of a journey where them trying to articulate their understanding of the risk and getting us as clients comfortable with what they're coming out with is still quite challenging. I don't think anyone would say that any one of those vendor firms has won the race. Yeah, I think there's front runners maybe who are doing a better job, but it's still hard to have an edge. You mentioned quite a lot of challenges with vendor models currently. What are some of those key challenges that companies are facing? The main challenge for me, having seen a variety of them, is they all have a very different approach to modeling the risk. And that in itself is not an issue. The challenge is just you as a company have to align your view of risk to theirs. You have to confirm the way that they've thought about the risk is similar to yours. We're just not at that maturity like with NatCat models where they're well understood and how the approach is done. Like There can be some really fundamental differences to the way that these companies are thinking about the risk and modeling it, and particularly like which peril they think might be the peak peril, so like cloud or ransomware type of event, the peak cap event for one of those companies might be not for the other one and be the opposite. And why they think that is really important. And then that kind of has to align to yours. And I guess you shouldn't just be picking the one that gives you the lowest number. You should be picking the one that really reflects how you view the risk and how you want to manage the risk in your portfolio. And those philosophical differences from the companies is the first hurdle. And I think the second hurdle is a lot of them have come out of more of a startup mentality, not through the insurance industry. And so there's been a bit of learning on both sides, I think, as to what does it mean to be an insurer in a regulatory environment and what do they need to be able to license and use a vendor model in that space, especially as it can be an expensive thing. You don't want it to be an expensive thing that doesn't really work throughout your business. There's been a bit of that. I've been on the validation side, and I think validation of CyberCat is really challenging because we don't have past events really to benchmark it to, and the vendors themselves are basically struggling with that as well because they're having to come up with NOICAT events to benchmark from. And so that's a real challenge, I think. So we can only do like the best with what we've got. But then again, back to my other point, to some extent, the risk will always be forward-looking. The next CAT event will be driven by the threat and the security landscape that currently exists. And that could change very rapidly within like five years. The periodists, how often we look at the risk itself, parameterize it, understand it, and that type of thing will need to happen much quicker 
are much more regular than maybe we have been used to. So one of the things we've seen over the last couple of years is massive increase in the price of cyber insurance. But there are warnings now that the market might be softening. Of course, there could be all sorts of reasons for that, excess capacity, better understanding of risk, et cetera. But be keen to just hear your thoughts on how pricing might progress. No one's got a crystal ball, but just the sort of things that might affect it over the coming years. I would expect prices to remain quite strong while capacity currently remains quite constrained. Although at least there's excess capacity coming in the market that I'm not really aware of then sure. But from what I've heard, it's been a difficult renewals season and some companies have been choosing not to seed out some of that risk. I think that's been in public domain. And then one company has made a very big statement with an ILS transfer as well. So some of those things may help, but I'm not sure that any of that to me would really mean that there'd be a dramatic drop-off in price currently because I think demand is still going to outstrip the capacity in the short term. Unless the ILS piece takes off and more companies have more confidence to be able to offer capacity with a different risk transfer mechanism because I think ultimately a lot of this lands on the reinsurers and the worry at the reinsurers is the cat event type of situation. And until the market gets more comfortable with that, I think I personally can't see things changing dramatically. That's Beasley that released the Cybercat bond? Yes. Yeah, a few weeks ago, I think. Do you see innovation to some degree like that being part of the solution here? Or is that something that might just fade away? No, absolutely. I mean, I've been involved in a working group called Astin, which has been holding events, discussing this in the market for the last three or four years, very specifically about ILS transfer of CyberCat, because particularly some underwriters were very adamant that this was the only way to like release the capital in the market. And to some extent, cyber should be very well set up to have ILS triggers, a parametric trigger to it. It should be measurable. You should be able to define a trigger. Or at least that's what we thought at the start. And I think the more we dug into that, it became much more difficult determining what is an appropriate trigger, what is independent trigger and verifiable. I mean, there are quite a lot of challenges to setting up. And I think the Beasley one, I didn't see all the details into it, but they found a simple way of enacting that ILS transfer rather than maybe something our group was discussing, but there's huge scope for it. I think it's been, in particular, I think the biggest challenge has been the capital markets getting up to speed and comfortable with cyber risk and accepting that transfer, because I think that's the thing that's taken the time when it became cost-effective for them. You've been involved, Simon, in the production of an actuarial working party paper just recently released on cyber risk within capital models. Can you comment on that briefly? What for you are some of the most important takeaways that people within the industry should look to get from that research? Our working party, just as a bit of background, is just we've been going for a few years and we just generally try to kind of release resources that are helpful and topical about what's currently going on. So operational cyber risk was something we looked at before, then silent cyber was something we did a big bit on, and then we've commented on regulation and pricing and currently as well looking at reserving topics as well. But something that I thought was becoming more and more important was the capital side 
to cyber and particularly kind of, I guess, from my experience with the vendor models on the cat side, we started talking a lot and thinking about like, how do companies actually allow for cyber in their capital models, given this is a new and emerging class of business that sometimes you can hear like big statements in the press that CyberCat is going to be as big as NatCat events. And if that's true, then it should be given the same kind of focus and attention as we would give NatCat events. And it started off mid-COVID, I think, where we held some kind of workshops with people in the market that we knew, mostly around the Lloyd's market, speaking to people on through our connections and held a couple of like round table type of things just to understand exactly what people were doing. And then we tried to distill this down into the paper into like by each risk area, what should you be thinking about? What are the cyber specific things that are relevant for this area of the model? And then another bit on validation, what should you be focusing on when it comes to that and your ERM framework? It's really kind of a discussion framework guide type of thing and how to think about cyber across your capital model or the things you should be thinking about and to key like dependencies i know it's like one of those impossible areas really to parameterize especially when it comes to something like cyber but it's obviously a very big thing that need to be looked at and justified and all those type of topics so i think that the key takeaway is just our actuaries and risk management capital actuaries getting their management and boards comfortable that we have the appropriate capital and can justify that when challenged for writing this cyber business. And I guess one other piece is that you don't even have to be writing cyber directly to be exposed to it as well. There's still a cyber risk in your capital model, whether you kind of like it or not. And if you are one of those boards or senior management trying to get comfortable with what the team are doing, what are the maybe key things that you should be looking out for or things you should be challenging or questions you should be asking of your team to help you get that understanding? I think for me, it's certainly about how have they reacted to what's going on in the external environment. So when Ukraine and Russia war happened, you would have expected to see some kind of response in the way that you were allowing for that in your modelling at the time, it would have been very early days, I guess, to do that assessment. But we should always be thinking about these big macro events and thinking about what impact they're having on the risk landscape and whether that means we're more or less exposed. Because actually, last year meant that your portfolio was probably safer, actually, than it had been in previous years. So I think certainly boards and senior management, I think, should be challenging that parameterization process, that thought process to make sure that it's been happening, the discussions are happening at an appropriate level and about the changes going on around the world. I mean, some of the more really advanced companies would be maybe looking at stuff in much more detail. Like you can use these companies to tell you about like how active the black market is and how many zero day vulnerabilities exist currently and how they can be utilized and what weapons. If you're forming that kind of holistic view about what the current threat landscape looks like, again, that might inform the way that you parameterize your model. And it gives you justification to do that as well. If you're changing the way that you view the risk year on year because you've got all this information, it's a much more solid argument than just either not doing anything or just tweaking it without much justification at all. So it's definitely not straightforward and it's definitely tough. And I think to some degree, it will definitely depend on 
how material you consider it to be. It sounds like the sort of area where for companies who write cyber business especially, boards are going to need ongoing training to stay up to speed with this because, yes, you'd expect the cyber underwriters to be on top of it, but these are quite difficult risks for a non-expert to understand, and yet you're taking responsibility as a board member for the volumes you're going to write, the particular strategies, etc. Where's that training and expertise likely to come from mostly? You're right. I think they will need educated, like just generally, because I think the cyber risk affects not only the understanding of the risk on the portfolio, but also the operational risk side to their own company. What current threats are out there? What could they be impacted by? Are their own companies well defended? And that in itself can lead to the same conversations about the portfolio they're writing and are they exposed to those same risks? Likely that's going to come probably externally or via the IT department. There's likely to be some external input just to be able to keep on top of those emerging threats and risks and trends. In my time being in the cyber space, you come across a lot of small and quirky and interesting cyber companies who are looking at loads of different stuff. And there's one particular company where the former cyber UK army kind of people, and they've got such a unique view on it all. And equally, I've spoke to NSA people, and they have such an insight that you're never going to get unless you have those people in to tell you where the threat is going. I guess it'd be interesting to know what you think are new threats that are developing. I was having a brief flick through the presentation you gave at Gyro, and you talked about supply chain poisoning, which just sounded absolutely terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so give us a rundown of a couple of the threats that currently people are exposed to and will be going forward. That's exactly one of the things that one of those companies told me about. I was talking to them. They were, and this was kind of off the back of Ukraine and Russia. And this was one of the weapons that they were talking about that was being developed and really being used at the war effort level and not being deployed more broadly. And the supply chain poisoning was just the concept of you attacking a particular part of that supply chain that lots of companies are dependent upon. And therefore, you create much wider destruction or impact or whatever it is you're trying to do than just like targeting one company. So it's utilizing some common piece of software. So that in itself is not entirely new that you're trying to compromise one piece of software to have a wide ranging damage. I mean, at the end of the day, that's kind of what NotPetya was. But the supply chain poisoning thing is more to do with attacking a particular area to maximize your objective to one key piece of that supply chain. So whether it's manufacturing you want to get out rather than hit the manufacturer, you can hit lots of them by hitting one key company. One of the other ones that's in there is like clickless phishing, which I think everyone will be kind of aware of phishing. I think your companies probably test you on that all the time. And I was surprised to hear about this clickless phishing where you don't even need to click on anything anymore. You just need to receive the email. So you can imagine that potential consequences of that type of event and apparently that was how Boris Johnson's phone was hacked I was told was he got a clickless phishing email and that's how all the texts were released I don't know whether it currently has the wide scale capabilities or whether it has to be very targeted at the moment but these were some of the things that these ex-army cyber security people were telling us about these weapons that they were discovering coming out of the war efforts and that were causing them concern and they were expecting that maybe coming out and being released. But I guess the important thing is that those 
teams and companies know about this and the likes of Microsoft and whoever also know about this and prepare our defenses as well. So a war, like any war, is a good place to develop weapons. That's the thing I think going forward will be the concern is that when the war starts to calm down and hopefully stops, that all those people focused on that will then suddenly start using those weapons to make money. Wow, so much to consider. Thank you so much, Simon. That has been really fascinating. I feel like I've learned a lot and probably going to leave the podcast slightly more scared than I did at the start. (laughs) (laughs) Where things are going to go in the future. As this is the start of season three, previous listeners will know we like to end on fun questions. We're changing it up this season a little bit. I'm going to ask you quick fire questions. We'd like you to respond with either just a likely or unlikely. Caveats are allowed, obviously. As I say, we'd never ask you to commit fully to a yes or a no. Charles, do you want to read off the questions? Question number one. Will we still be using Microsoft Excel in 10 years' time? Likely. Very likely. Boris Johnson will become Prime Minister again. Very unlikely. I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Inflation in the UK will halve this year? It's tough. Unlikely, I think. The UK will be net zero by 2050. I'd like to think likely, but I have no idea. The next James Bond will be a woman. I saw the rumour mills the other day and I think that's unlikely. Okay. A few interesting bits there. So hopefully maybe we can get all our guests to answer them and see how many come true or not come true. This is valuable data we're collecting, Jess. (laughs) (laughs) We should do one of those benchmark packs at the end. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. yeah. We'll draw some box of whiskers charts. Yeah, we'll be doing all our benchmark at work, Charles, and we'll just have at the end stats on the next James Bond. (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) Thank you so much, Simon. Simon, it's been so good to get to know you a bit better. And thanks so much for sharing your knowledge today. I think our listeners are going to find this really, really interesting. Thank you so much. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We would like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, April Harrison, and the podcast consultants for helping to produce this episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.